0: Who is Jesus? And uh, some of us here think that's the most important question we could ever answer. I'm one of those who believe it's the, mo- it's the pivotal question. Uh, history is divided between A.D. and B.C. or B.C. and A.D. And so uh, somebody thought it was a pretty important question. He was a pretty important person. So uh, you'd think we would want to spend some time figuring out who Jesus is and why we're here this morning is because of this man who walked the earth for only 33 years, only had three years of public ministry, yet uh, we're still talking about him. And you think about all the other great leaders and all the other people who've come and gone, who really haven't made much of a ripple in current culture and society in the world, where this man, three years of public ministry, and never, uh, you know, you've heard all the prose and poetry about he never wrote a song or uh, had an army or uh, built a building or any of that, any of those things that we say, if you want to be great, you have to do. You have to do all these things. He never did any of those things that we say would le- would give you a legacy. He never did any of those things. He just was himself. And yet today, even as we sit here at this hour, who, who, how many people had, 1055 on Sunday morning, uh, across the, this time zone, are sitting in church. So a lot of people, you know, a lot of people think uh, you, you've probably seen a lot of stuff about Christianity's dying. No, that really is somewhat deceptive. I, I know church attendance is down in a lot of places and a lot of denominations, but what has happened in the last few years is the squishy metal is disappearing. the squishy metal, the people who aren't sure, the people that didn't really believe but just were going to church for social reasons. And what is emerging, I'm very excited about what's emerging. What's emerging is people who have a real solid faith in Christ. And and so that's what we're going to talk about. Maybe you're here and you don't have, uh, you don't even believe that Jesus is the Son of God or you're not sure. This this is for you. The sermon today is especially for you because we're going to talk about Jesus, the lover of skeptics. I want to talk about how much Jesus loved people who doubt and how much, people he loved, how much he loved people who were skeptical and how the Christian religion in particular is tailor-made for skeptics. And, and it's just like no other religion in, in that respect and many others. So we're going to read about a skeptic today in John chapter 1, verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, this is Nathanael's response. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, There is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. I think about when I think about faith in Jesus Christ. I think about my own spiritual development, and I think about how life started for me. Raised in a, uh, you know, fundamental evangelical Pentecostal church, Uh, naturally it was very easy for me to believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, It would have been hard not to believe in Jesus Christ. Um, So, so I did. I began that journey. I, I would say the first thoughts I had about believing in Jesus was. I, what I would call the first Jesus that I met was the Blessed Assurance Jesus. Because uh, we were, of course, taught there was he- a heaven to gain and a hell to shun, and, and putting faith in Christ, confessing him as being the Son of God, was your ticket to go to heaven and not go to hell. And when you're six years old, it's just, what are you going to do? You're going you're to accept Jesus. And so I did. Um, and I would say that as time went on, though that, that part of my relationship with Jesus wasn't such a big deal. Didn't really think about hev- heaven and hell and, and that sort of thing. But I began to experience uh, what I would call the presence of God Jesus. Because in my church, it was very important to feel the presence of God. Feeling the presence of God was mostly related to going to church services, which we went to church services many times a week. Church services, and those church services were highly emotional, highly charged with emotion. Uh, We sang songs like, uh, uh, reach out and touch the Lord as he passes by. He's waiting this moment to hear your hearts cry. We sing we songs like, let Jesus fix it for you. He knows just what to do. We sing about the being in the presence of Jesus. We, we, we sang, uh, what's that Lanny Wolf song, Sherry? The, Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. Uh, I can feel his mighty presence and his grace. I can hear the br- brush of angel wings. I see glory on each face. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. We would sing these songs about the presence of Jesus, and there would be high emotion, tears, I mean, the 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 goal was uh, an emotional uh, response. The goal was to feel something that you certainly felt was from another world, and and uh, so that was that was a part of an aspect of Jesus that I that I enjoyed and 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 still experience today. So I'm not saying I'm not saying all of this is past and not a part of my life anymore, but. But it's, it, the priority has changed. And then the third Jesus, and of course as you, as, as you get older and you get into trouble, uh, you need the problem solver Jesus. So the third Jesus that I met was the problem solver Jesus. The Jesus who could get me out of a jam. The Jesus who could solve my problems. And it, it might have been as simple as the, the, the girl that I liked, that the Lord Jesus would, would intervene help me out, you know, hook me up, Jesus. <laughs> or, or the earaches that I had, a chronic earache when I was a kid. And uh, I, my ear would hurt. I, just, I, just, I have such a vivid memory of earaches. And in those days, don't get any ideas, by the way, what I'm about to say, but uh, the pastor, you know, the pastors would go to your house and pray for you if you had an earache. In those days, and so my mother would call Pastor Earl J. Rogers. We call him Father Time because he pastored our church for 33 years, and everybody in Collin County knew Earl J. Rogers. They no doubt, performed more weddings, more funerals than any other pastor in history. Uh, amazing man that people have, and he could pray so beautifully. And so he would come over and pray for my ear and, and, and other, other things in our life. So, so I met the problem solver, Jesus. And uh, there's, nothing wrong in, it, it, there's nothing wrong with those three aspects of Jesus. I mean, I still believe there's eternity. And I still believe Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. I, I still enjoy feeling the presence of the Lord when we come together. I still pray to Jesus about my problems. But... As many of you who've walked this walk for a long time, you know that you know you go through periods when when you don't feel the presence of Jesus. You know, go through, you go through stuff that it seems like Jesus doesn't solve your problems. So, in the last 20 years, I've developed another relationship with Jesus. I say another Jesus. I know it's the same one, but I, I've developed another Jesus. And that's just because you're truly the Son of God, Jesus. Just because I believe it's true. Not because I feel your presence. Not because you solve my problems. And not even because I believe the theology about eternal life being through you. But because you are who you say. It, it happened at the, because you are who you said you were. It happened on the cross when Jesus was dying, and hardly anybody talks about one of the greatest witnesses of Christ was a Roman centurion who at the time of Jesus' death looked up and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. He did not say, Truly, I feel the presence of God in this place. He didn't say, The complication is, Emotional distress, depression just went away. My problems just got solved because Jesus died on the cross. He didn't even say, now I have the insurance that I will go to heaven and I go to hell. He said one thing, this was. This man was who he said he was. He was the son of God. There's nothing wrong with those first three dimensions of Jesus. I still look to Jesus for those things to solve my problems. I still look for him to, to feel his presence. I still... I, I But but I fail to find that when those things aren't there, I need something that's left, something that's infinitely more important, and it is I need to find that he is true. Truly, and I could say it this way, truly the God-man he claimed to be. Uh, being raised to believe my skepticism... You know, my skepticism worked backward. A lot of you are start with skepticism. I started with believing... And I hit the wall of skepticism about 15 or 20 years ago when so many people that I prayed for that would, to, to live died. And a lot of things seemed to go wrong. And people that I had relationship with walked away. I, that's when I went through my skepticism. That's when I went through, okay, i got to have something more than just feelings presence. So I love that. i got to have something more than one who solves my problems. I really considered walking away from the faith. And that's kind of what this series is about, and then what I'm going to talk about this morning. Now, let's move on. Uh, I talked too much about myself this morning, so let's, m- let's move on and talk about Nathaniel, our central character in our text today. To put, a, to put our text about Nathaniel in context, we need to understand how education worked in those days. In those days, you didn't go to—there were no universities or colleges in those days— If you wanted to learn and you wanted to get an education, you found a mentor or a rabbi. You found a teacher that you did life with and you walked with and you consulted with who mentored you. So that what happened to these men was very common in that day that young Jewish men would find a rabbi and walk with him and they would learn his ways. And they, 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 they would walk, they had a phrase called walking in the dust of your rabbi. So they would walk in the dust of the rabbi. And into this scenario steps Jesus, the rabbi from God. And Nathaniel was the skeptical student who incredulously asked what good thing can come from Nazareth. Nazareth, what good thing can come from there? To further understand this, it may help us to realize that the Greeks believed that the universe had a rational and moral order to it. And, And this order of nature, they had a word for it. They called it the Logos. The moral order of the universe was directed by something called the Logos. For the Greeks, the meaning of life was to contemplate this order of life, whatever they thought it was. And they defined a well-lived life as one that conformed to whatever doctrine or whatever logos that they were, were teaching at the time. And, of course, this would change with Greek teaching and mythology. It cannot be a coincidence, coincidence that in John chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is called what? The Word. The Greek is logos. John 1, 1, and the Word was with God. And the word, the Logos, was God. He was with God in the beginning. So different than than the, what the Greeks believed, that it was a system of teaching. Jesus Christ, God, came, in, and at least the writer John believed that they had found the order of nature and the order of universe and the way to live and the way to be not in a not in a body of teaching, but in a person. In a person, in the person of Jesus Christ, John chapter one, verse two, three, and I'll skip to verse fourteen. Says, "Through him all things were made; without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and in that life was the light of all mankind. And the Word, again, logos, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory." Now, secularism, which is what we're caught up in today, often asserts that all saviors and all religions are the same and that one holds no more meaning than the other. It's uh, that your religious beliefs are just mere social or mental constructs. It gives the weak an emotional crutch and brings order to the world. Uh, Reza Aslan, a Believer series, started last Sunday night on CNN. And uh, Aslan, who identifies himself as a um, Sufi Muslim said, I know better, here's what he said, I know better than to take the truth claims of any religion, including my own, too seriously. And considering, he goes on to say, and considering the conflict and bigotry religion inspires and the way it clashes with reason, it is understandable why so many people view religious faith as the hallmark of an irrational mind. He goes on to say, and he goes on to liken the religions of the world, this is something from Buddhism, he likens the religions of the world to different wells in which believers dig in in order to drink the same water. In other words, all religions, all saviors are equally true. All roads, so to speak, lead to heaven, resurrection, enlightenment, nirvana, or whatever else your end game may be. His idea is that all religions are really just different paths of the same nebulous, emotion-centric experience that we call faith. Now later in this series, I'm going to talk about why I don't believe this idea of all religions being the same is logical. Perhaps Nathaniel was like that. Perhaps he was an intellectual snob who rolled his eyes. Or maybe he was even a bigot about certain social classes. When, When Philip comes to him and says, I want you to meet this new rabbi, he's got the answers to the biggest questions of our time. He's what Moses was talking about. He's from Nazareth, he sneers. Nazareth. What good thing can come from there? Everybody See everybody from Jerusalem look down on Nazareth or look down on people from Galilee, which is where Nazareth was. Uh, this kind of attitude is pretty characteristic of human race, isn't it? But let me tell you something. here's the deal. Here's the deal about Christianity. Christianity will always be from Nazareth. Christianity will always be from Nazareth. Christianity will always come from sources that will cause you at times to roll your eyes. I've been apologizing and rolling my eyes at Christian leaders for years. (laughs) Oh, God, do you have to use them? Surely you could. God, couldn't you make us a little more cool? Can't we be a little cooler than this? But the Christ, Christ encounter with Nathaniel proves something though. And I, I wasn't expecting, I didn't go into this series kind of with a preconceived idea of what I was going to find. As I begin to study, I found out something that Jesus isn't skeptical about skeptics. That in fact skeptics are some of his favorite people. Let's talk to about that, okay, for the next 20 minutes or so or less. Let's talk about the nature. Uh, Let's talk about skeptics. And first of all, I want to talk about the nature of skeptics. Can any good thing come from, from there, he says. Nathaniel says. See, Nathaniel wasn't going to be gullible. Evidently, Jesus liked that. Nathaniel wasn't going to be manipulated. Evidently, Jesus was okay with that too. Nathaniel wasn't going to get something this important wrong. You know, some people just do whatever their friends do, not Nathaniel. I would say social conversion is one of the main reasons people get converted to whatever belief system they've adopted is social conversion. You, you see all these protesters out on the streets. They go out with a microphone and, what are you protesting? I don't know. Did you read the executive order? No, I never read it. Why are you protesting Here's the deal. They're protesting, a lot of them, because their friends are there. And they're all getting to skip class. And it's probably a great place to meet girls out there. I don't know. (laughs) Or guys, whichever way you're going there. Nathaniel wasn't going to get something this important wrong. Nathaniel was resistant to appear appearing uncool and out of touch with public opinion it, it doesn 't feel good not to be cool it doesn 't feel good when you feel that everybody else is like intellectually uh, awesome and, and up here and you you believe in stuff that's, that's just ancient, ancient stuff, traditions you just believe in a bunch of traditions. That really won't, hold, won't pass muster and won't hold water. Who wants, who wants to be weird? Anybody want to be weird? Anybody want to be not a part of the... Thank you. Nathaniel didn't want to appear narrow-minded. That's one of the big things. The people... I want to keep an open mind. I want to keep an open mind that, that all paths could lead to God. I, I don't want to restrict myself to one system of belief. Let me tell you something about narrow-mindedness. Believing facts can't be called narrow-mindedness. You can argue that the facts are wrong. That's, that's different, though, than calling facts narrow-mindedness. Lee Strobel, uh, who writes uh, extensively on apologetics and make the case for Christ, the case for Easter, many other great books, was a journalist in Chicago who converted to Christian faith. And he talks about this. He, sa- he talks about some friends of his who had a child who was jaundiced. And the, the child was jaundiced, and they went to the doctor. And many of you have had that experience, uh, a child who was jaundiced. You get him home, and you expect him to be white or what, brown, whatever your, your nationality is, and they get turn yellow, you go, this, this, is, not, this is not in our genes, I don't think. <laughs> right. Uh, so you take the child back to the doctor, and and he talks about his friends, and this has happened to some of us. And you go back, and what do they do? They say, "Well, we'll we put this child under a special light, and it will stimulate the liver, and, th- and it will be it will be better." Now you could say to the doctor, "Listen, doc, I think you're very narrow-minded. I'm gonna we're gonna try some. Other, we we believe if we use enough soap." we will turn this child whatever color it's supposed to be. So, no, the doctor would say you're crazy. I'm not narrow-minded. This is a fact that we know this is what works. So it's not narrow-minded. If if you believe, if it is factual that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, if it is factual that he was a historical figure who lived and died, if it is factual that the prophecies of Scripture have come to pass. If these things are factual, and I'm not saying they are or not, I'm going to leave that open for you to decide if they're factual or not, but don't call people narrow-minded who have settled on a belief. In fact, as we're going to see as we go on this morning, everybody has settled on a belief. In fact, the belief that all roads lead to God is a belief. That's a dogmatic belief, that all roads lead to God, that all roads lead to heaven. That is also a dogmatic belief. If you believe, because you always get down to it and it's always like, well, I believe if people do their best and they're good and they do the best they can, that they're going to be good with God. Well, that's a belief. You know what you are? You're a moralist. If you believe that if people are good and they do their best, that everything's going to be right eternally, then you are a moralist. So I'm not saying you're wrong or right. I'm just saying, yes, everybody has eventually a settled belief. We're going to get into that a little more. The, de- the deception, you know, I think another thing about Nathaniel, he was turned off by people being overly certain. The deception of our skepticism is the belief that we're not as narrow-minded as those people who believe they found the one, the truth, the life, and the way. I thought N.T. Wright has an excellent observance or uh, response to this in his book, Simply Jesus, when he writes, skepticism is no more neutral or objective than faith. It has thrived in the post-enlightenment world, which didn't want God to be king. Saying this doesn't, of course, prove anything in itself. It just suggests that we keep an open mind and recognize that skepticism, too, comes with its own agenda. I thought that was a good observance. Now, let's, let's move from talking about the nature of skepticism to the need of skeptics. What do they need? What do, what do I need? I'm a skeptic as well. So what do we need as skeptics? I love Jude chapter 1, verse 22. I love, I would have never, I, I, this is, there are many, many reasons I believe in God. And there are many reasons I believe in the scripture. But one thing that helps me believe in scripture and believe in God is because I, I keep reading things that are counterintuitive to human nature. And a human being, one thing I've had a lot of experience is being around humans. I, I am an expert at being around humans. I have spent all my life on humans. I wasn't even raised by wolves. <laughs> and, and there's just some things that I read in Scripture, and I read it, and I go, no human would have ever thought of that. No human being would have ever come up with that. And this is one of those verses that I love. It says in Jude one twenty two, Be merciful to those who doubt. If I was God, and I had created the universe... I would be furious with people who doubted me. I'm furious with people who doubt me now, and I have not, I've done very little. I've very, done very little to justify the self-righteous way that I am. Listen to Christ. I know we read it in the beginning. Let's read again Christ's reaction to Nathaniel. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, I, 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 what would you have said? I got to tell you a thing or two, jerk. What good thing can come from Nazareth? You and I got to tell, let's step out back. (laughs) What do you mean? What do you mean, you bigot? You racist? (laughs) No, Jesus approached him and said, here's a true Israelite. Doesn't that blow your mind? Doesn't that blow your mind? Doesn't that tell you how gracious we need to become? If we're going to re- truly represent, it's not about winning people to Jesus. Well, we want to do that, of course. As I explained to one of our town leaders the other day, he said, of course we want to win you all to Jesus. But we could love you anyway. Even if you never come to our church and these people you want to help never come to our church, we're going to do it anyway because we are called to represent. I want to represent who Jesus is. I want to leave this community someday when, the, when they have my funeral. I want them to say, we have a better idea of what Jesus is like because this guy walked, lived among us. And so, the, <laughs> amen? So look how gracious. Here's the true, is the light, and then there's nothing false. In other words, this guy's real. I like that. He's real. He's honest. He, there's nothing fraudulent. He is... He's uh, self-differentiated, is what Murray Bowen would have said. How do you know me, Nathaniel asked? <laughs> Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree, before Philip called you. Now, we don't really know what happened in the fig tree. Maybe it's something really scandalous and horrible. I don't know. <laughs> you saw that? <laughs> Some have suggested he was born under a fig tree. Maybe he was just standing around doing nothing. I don't know. But when he realized that the Lord knew him, you know, sometimes we think the key to people's hearts is some highly intellectual argument. And I, 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 I like intellectual arguments and do think some people do come to faith through a highly intellectual argument. And they're, they're, they've written many books, Josh McDowell, More Than a Carpenter, uh, James Morrison, Who Moved the Stone. Many, many people... Have come to Christ through intellectual persuasion. But Nathaniel, it was personal. This is what I've been looking for someone who really understands me. Someone who really knows me. Someone who really cares about me. Someone who's not critical of me. Someone who loves me. Skeptics need respect. Skeptics need love. Skeptics need confidence. Skeptics need information. See, modern skeptics don't realize, as I made the point a minute ago, secularism, which which is probably the predominant, predominant religion of the day, they don't call it a religion, secularism is a set of beliefs not recognized as beliefs. Philip Johnson, the Berkeley law professor who wrote Darwin on trial and the reason for belief, said this, he who is a skeptic in one set of beliefs, in one set of beliefs, is a true believer in another set of beliefs. Sometimes skeptics just need to be challenged to scrutinize their beliefs as much as they as their beliefs as much as they do others. See, I have no problem you're a critic of Christianity, but you should also be a critic of everything else just as much. Demand the same proof of atheism as you do of Christianity. Demand the same proof of humanism as you do Christianity. Demand the same proof of the Eastern religions as you do Christianity. I think you may come up with a different result. Jesus basically said, Nathaniel's a good man. It's very interesting. It's very interesting because you know what Christianity does? This is, this is really cool. Christianity connects with a lot of your key core values. You know that? One mistake that some Christian preachers have made is that those who don't have faith don't have the same goodness that we have who have faith. Listen, one of the core teachings of Christian faith is that our goodness is a gift from God, that my righteousness is a gift from the Lord, that someone apart from Christ has goodness. Here, here's some of the things, the core values. That you should love your enemies, not kill them. <laughs> that came from Christianity. That humans, uh, regardless of talent, wealth, race, or gender, are made in God's image and have dignity and rights. That we should take care of the poor. And what you've got to remember, in pre-Christian Europe, when the monks were propagating Christianity, the elites of society... The the, the elites of society said society would fall apart if we loved our enemies and cared for the poor. They said the poor are born to suffer. But the teachings of Christianity revolutionized pagan Europe by stressing the dignity of the person, the primacy of love, including toward enemies, and the care of the poor and the orphans. I, I challenge you to go back and prove that those teachings came from somewhere else besides Christianity. I, I'm not aware of it, if those teachings of loving enemies, caring for the poor, came from somewhere else besides the Lord Jesus Christ and the Christian community. You know, Christianity is often viewed as being a very narrow-minded thing, but if, if you look at the writings of Paul, now it's funny, today we look at the writings of Paul and we go, you know, he's saying, wives submit to your husband's. What a misogynist. But if you, read, if you read the writings of Paul through an East, the Eastern culture that he was a part of, the Middle Eastern culture that he was a part of, you would have seen he was incredibly progressive. He said in Christ there's neither male or female, junior nor Greek, all are one. You see the elevation of women to ministry, to be evangelists and prophetesses. Nowhere else in culture was that happening in that day. It, it, the fact that women were invited to church wasn't happening in that day. The, the women were being taught religious teachings were not allowed in that day and in that era. Paul was extremely radical when he said, husbands, love your wives. That, that doesn't sound radical to us, and it shouldn't be radical. But that was quite radical in that day. The people that he wrote that to felt no obligation to love their wife. She was property. She was a property your wife and children were property of the man in the, those, those extremely patriarchal cultures. In fact, the men in Ephesus and other places, history tells us there were brothels on every corner because men used their wife to have ch- children, but they, most of their needs, sexual needs were met in the brothels. No obligation to love. A, a, a man could put his child to death in that culture. Thank God for Christianity. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Thank God for this way of life. You say, we would have gotten there anyway. Well, maybe. I don't know. Let's look at the natural spiritual leader for skeptics. John chapter 1, verse 49. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the man. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, Nathaniel, you ain't seen nothing yet. Tim Keller said, all of the religions were begun by a prophet who said, I'm a prophet come to help you find God. Only Christ said, I am God coming to find you. Isn't that good? Jesus isn't offended by our questions. Jesus doesn't judge us for our doubt. Jesus actually rewards us for scrutinizing him and his word. Christianity, as far as I know, and I don't know everything about every religion. I know very little about all the other religions. But as far as I know, it's the only religion that actually rewards us for questioning and debating. Christianity is the only religion I know of where people are invited to check it out. It's... uh, it centers on a Savior who did everything. This is so important to me. He did everything that was done was before witnesses. Jesus died, lived before witnesses. He didn't go off in some secret cult somewhere, a cave somewhere, or a community somewhere. Everything was out in public. He said it one time. He said, "I want you people to know this thing's not being done in a corner. This thing's being done out, so everybody can see it. Everybody can 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 verify it." And he died publicly. 500 people saw him after he rose from the dead in one one meeting. Refuting Christianity, refuting the resurrection would have been the easiest thing in the world to do. When Jesus rose from the dead. And they were doing everything they could to stamp out the religion. But they they didn't go get those 500 witnesses because those witnesses saw it. Christianity was done. Where you see religions, and I'm not critical. I'm not being hypercritical and bigoted toward other religions. But I'm telling you, all the other religions that I know of, including including Mormonism, Islam, Buddhism, and others, they started with a single person who claimed to have a private revelation that nobody saw, and nobody could scrutinize, and nobody could ever question that they had this private revelation that they saw in a cave or they saw some t- stone tablets in New York State somewhere delivered by the angel Moroni. These things, and I'm not, being, I'm not trying to be critical or mean-spirited toward another religion. We can work together, and we do work together people, all sorts of religions, but I'm telling you, I'm defending my faith, though. I'm defending what we believe. I'm defending that this thing, when it comes to historical verifi- verifiability, there's no comparison with the life of Jesus compared to Joseph Smith, Muhammad, or other spiritual leaders. Amen? Jesus said, or the Lord said in Isaiah 118, come sit down. I love this. Let's argue this out. <laughs> this is God's message. If your sins are blood red, they'll be snow white. If they're red like crimson, they'll be like wool. The Lord knows The brain is not where our problem is. It's the heart. The brain is not where we need transformation. We need transformation in our heart. Because we're crippled by this disease called sin. And he came not to just make us intellectuals, but he came to make us redeemed. Amen? So this morning, Christianity is an invitation to a conversation with Christ. That's what it is. It's an invitation to a conversation with Christ. It's not an invitation to a philosophical teaching. There's a philosophical teaching that goes with it, of course. But it's an invitation to a conversation with Christ through prayer. Through prayer, and and not only through prayer, through human relationships and the Bible. For those of you, listen to me, for those of you who haven't done so already, you know what I'm going to invite you to do? So you're going to invite me to so accept Jesus, right? Well, yeah, if you can. that's good. I want to invite you to something else, though. I want to invite you to start having a conversation with Jesus. I want you to invite you to start talking to him. I want you to invite you to start saying, Jesus, if you're real, prove yourself to me. If you're real, Jesus, I want to meet you. I want to know your presence. And let's see what happens. I'm not here to defend Jesus. I'm here to let him defend himself. I said, I'm not here to defend Jesus. I'm here to see if Jesus will defend himself. Because he has done so with me. And I believe he will do the same for you. If you want prayer about this matter or any other matter in your life, prayer partners are here. They're great people. And they're redeemed people. And they know how to tell you the story of salvation. And they know how to tell you the story of Jesus. They'll just pray with you. So I want, we're going to enter into what we call response time at Bethany Community Church. When, whatever need you have, because we believe we have a Jesus who cares, who cares about what you're going through. Yeah, we believe we do have a problem-solving Jesus, a presence of God Jesus, an eternal life Jesus. But more than anything, we believe you have an authentic Jesus. And I want to invite you to come and be prayed for this morning, or as well as receive communion. You can choose to just receive communion and be prayed for Let's enter into response time. I'm going to pray, when I'm done, let's move. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray for every one of us who are longing for a relationship with an eternal God, who, who recognize that we have a hunger, a hunger to be rescued from a human condition. And we are, are interested in the idea that the time-tested teaching that Jesus Christ was the God-man who came to change history. That He is the King of the world and the King of the Jews. And we want to engage with Him. And we want to cross that bridge from ignoring Him or, or being confused about Him alone to beginning to hear His voice and to begin to explore a relationship with Him. I pray, God. You will help those who need to make this move, to make that move today. In Jesus' name. You have been listening to the Bethany Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us online at bccma.org. Thank you, and God bless.